Thank you so much for joining us on Failing Forward. Joshua, can you please introduce yourself for our audience today? Sure, I'm Joshua Muskin. I'm a senior director and education team leader here at Geneva Global, which is a philanthropy advising firm based here outside of Philadelphia. Talk to us a little bit about the failure you're going to be telling us about today. I haven't really come with a, a single failure in mind. I've probably had too many to count. Um, a, one failure that I like to talk about is from early in my professional career when I was working for Save the Children in Sudan in a refugee settlement. It was Eritrean refugees, and we were starting a supplementary feeding garden with a group of women, about 90 women, I think it was, in the refugee settlement. And these were mostly nomadic folks who were living there. And so we started by going to the, the sheikh, the men leaders, and told them this is something that we were thinking of doing. And what did they think? Could we go ahead? And they said, sure, knock yourselves out. So we put a, a brush fence around maybe it was a quarter of a hectare uh, plot of land right next to the water source, the pumps that had a lot of runoff so that the garden would be irrigated from the runoff from the water pumps. And first thing we did was we grouped the women together and put them into sets of four to work a plot of land, maybe three by four meters. And with the gave them instruction, gave them the tools, gave them the seeds and said, get started. And the first thing they did was they divided the plots into four separate plots so that each woman was working her own small parcel of land. And that succeeded. They'd come in every day and weed and get rid of the insects and get advice from us and make sure that water was getting to their plants. And eventually the plants started flowering. And when that started happen, chickens started popping in under the fence and uh, eating the bugs and plucking at some of the plants. And the woman didn't seem all that bothered by it. My ag expert didn't seem all that bothered by it. But when the fruits started showing up or the vegetables started showing up, then some goats would slip through the bramble and sheep would slip through the bramble. And at this point, they had to chase them away and came to us and asked us if we would put up, erect a fence, a proper fence around the garden for them. And we said, well, we'll get you the materials, but can't you do it? Oh, no, we can't do it. We're women. I said, how about your sons or husbands or other folks? And they said, no, no, no. So we persisted in not doing it ourselves. We actually bought the fence posts, bought the chicken wire or whatever the fencing material was and laid it out. And a cow eventually got in and chased that away. And they came back and said, please put the fence. And we said, no, you need to do it or get someone to do it. And we succumbed in and dug the fence post holes and still left the materials there for them to erect. Well, finally, camels got in. And by the time the camels got in, that was pretty much the end of the garden. Um, so that was a huge failure, but 
with the next rainy season, we had maybe 10 times the number of women come to us and ask us for seeds and for tools so that they could grow their own gardens at their compounds uh, outside of their huts. And there they could control the animals and have their kids chase the animals away and put up whatever fencing they themselves wanted. So this was one of my first notable experiences of failing comma to succeed. So in the context of that story, why is it important for us to talk about failure? It's important to talk about failure because it's how you learn. I mean, I frequently tell my staff, whether my current staff or past staff, that um, when you succeed, you often don't know why. And it's really important to be able to understand the why of your success as well as the why of your failure. And the why of your failure gives you much better insight. I've, I've led our USA project, education project in Morocco several years ago. And in the first year under the contract, we were expected to work in just 36 schools. And the second year, you know, the idea was that we would go up to 50 or 60 schools. But I challenged, not only challenged, I told my staff that we were going to work in 360 schools or 300. It was actually 330 some schools the next year. And their argument was, we can't do that because we can't guarantee success. And I said, good, we want failure of schools so that we can see what are the factors that we, that allow us to succeed. And what are the factors that if they're not managed correctly or delivered properly, that will compromise the success that we had. And we don't learn from that. And when we're not learning from it, then we're not developing the, the messages or the, the learnings that are necessary for us to transmit the program from the, what I call the hothouse flower project, where we control all the factors to the government that is in a position where they do not have the same intensity of factors that we have, and in addition, uh, are operating at a scale that is vastly huger than the scale that we would be working at with a, a funded project. Tell us more about the hothouse flower effect. That's part of how we got in touch is this hothouse flower article that you published. Talk more about that. Right. When we're working with external funding, or even, you know, if a government's doing some sort of a pilot project with its own funding, we're in a position where we're cherry picking usually where we implement the program, right? So we're finding the best schools or the best um, agriculture agents um, and uh, with the best administrative leadership and perhaps. Uh, greatest access to resources, right, close to the road, for example. And we're bringing a um, concentration of funding and technical know-how and material resources to the project so that we are pretty much guaranteed, well, maybe not guaranteed, 
but we have great, greatly heightened our prospects for success. And when we're doing a three, five-year project with USAID funding or SEDO funding or whatever funding, um, we have a very strong motivation to get the results because that's what basically we're being, being paid to do. We're not being paid to learn, we're being paid to produce. Um, so the hothouse flower um, analogy is we've got the water, all the water we need. We've got the fertilizers, the best fertilizers we need. We have all the technology for pest control, um, all the factors we've got under control. And then we have this expectation that is often written into program documents or program contracts of handing it over to the government for scaling. And when the government has to implement the model, they're doing it to, at risk of abusing the metaphor, they're doing it in hard scrabble, salin, drought-ridden, pest-ridden soils at a much larger scale. So when I talk about going from 36 schools to 330-some schools, in year one to year two, part of my argument is in year one, we were validating the model, right? And we could keep using the model and have whatever success we can. But in year two, having validated the model, the technical model, it was time to start working on what it would take for government structures and government services and personnel within their institutional. Uh, parameters to be able to implement the model. So the challenge transitioned from perfecting the model to making sure that we were adapting the model to the parameters or to the constraints that the host country institutions that would be responsible for sustaining and scaling the model um, would be facing when it's there quote unquote, turn to to take it on. Yeah, in the hothouse, they definitely don't have to worry about camels getting into the garden. No, they don't. So what do we do about it? What are some ways to get around this hothouse effect? I think that CARE has a really good solution to this. And it's, and a lot of the big international NGOs have a good solution to this because their funding does not just come from short-term government contracts. So for example, the work that I'm supporting you all on now in Rwanda with the Village Savings and Loan Association program. And this is something that you've been implementing there for over a decade and probably mobilizing a lot of different sources of funding to do this, but you haven't been doing it within the narrow parameters of a time-bound funded project, right? Um, similarly, the farmer field and business schools that I'm working with you all on in Nepal, you have a long runway. Um, Geneva Global has been implementing an accelerated education program called Speed School in Ethiopia since 2011, mostly with private funding and in Uganda um, since 2016 with entirely private funding. And this kind of flexibility, one, it doesn't bind you to a 
a very rigidly defined set of outcomes to accomplish. Um, and uh, doesn't bind you to a very rigidly set strategy to accomplish it. So I like to say we have the opportunity to react both to challenges and to opportunities as they come up. Two, they it give you without having to without being beholden to very specific targets or quantitative benchmarks you can work towards you know good numbers we've reached in ethiopia we've reached almost 300,000 uh kids bringing them from out of school circumstances into education so it's not nothing and the work that you all are doing with the sla um is you know you're all with all the different programs you've got financial inclusion for over 90 percent of people there not all attributed to care but in a lot of it i believe inspired by the work that care started doing with the sla at the time so you're not just focusing on getting the numbers out you're focusing on how to implement the program within the structures that will be responsible for the long-term scaling and sustainability of the model. Um, so it just fo focuses your effort, it focuses your relationships, it focuses your monitoring and evaluation, what you're evaluating in a very different way. One of the things you talked about was in this sort of hothouse flower, when you're in the hothouse, you're doing the piloting, you have a lot of incentives to build things that aren't gonna work in the real world. They're not gonna work outside of that. Talk a little bit more about what those incentives are. What's pushing us to keep repeating this failure? The international project funding model that prevails, I think is largely behind this. Because when you sign a contract, often the contract specifies five years out what your deliverables will be and what how many beneficiaries you will reach and how you will measure accomplishment with those beneficiaries. So reading at a third grade level, right? Something like that. And also it binds you to how you do that, right? How many trainings of how many people on what subjects, right? And when you look five years out, it's, you know, we, none of us has a crystal ball. I, I, there's an expression I like to uh, share that if you get to the end of a plan, having done exactly what you said you were going to do in the original plan, you were not paying attention. When we're working in this hothouse, one, we, we're avoiding the common challenges that the program will face when it goes to scale. And we're focusing, I believe, narrowly on, on the mechanisms by which to do this, right? There are some funding approaches out there where when you win a contract, I've seen that you get a full six months to take your plan to the country, 
get together with the government partners, with civil society partners, whatever other stakeholders are involved, and say, okay, let's take this apart and put it back together again so that we really get buy-in. There are these incentives that push us towards creating hothouse flowers about locking your plan in place five years in advance and not just locking your final plan, but locking all of your activities too. Mm. There's a real push to show progress, right? We're always looking for easy wins. We're looking for documented um, work. And to some extent, there's that system is built partly out of a desire for accountability to be able to say, we need to know you're doing something. We need to know that you're not just sitting around saying, oh yes, we're very innovative and great over five years. How do we square that circle? How do you build that accountability and how do you build a focus on proving that it works and allow for that adaptability that forcing ourselves to confront the realities of the terrain, not just picking the easiest version because that's the one we can deliver fastest? I think it's through collaboration, co-creation, however you want to call it. One of the discussions I've been having with one of your colleagues in the work that I've been doing with CARE has touched on the question of how does an, an organization like CARE accompany the host country, whether it be the government sector, civil society sector, private sector, or more likely for many projects, some combination of the three, what role should an international organization like CARE be playing to where does the source of the innovation start, right? So does an international organization come in to a host set of host country institutions and say, we're going to help you create something new and pilot something new? Or do you come in and say, we've got something new that we would like to pilot for you. We want you to help us co-create the pilot and follow it and implement it closely with us, but we will take responsibility for the implementation of the innovation and work with you on moving it from our project to your project that you do at scale and sustainably. So, um, for example, in with the Speed School program in Ethiopia, um, we came to the government in 2010 with what seemed to them like a fairly cockamamie idea. And this was that we would take out-of-school children, children who had either dropped out, failed at school, or who had never been at school before, and we would give them the first three grades of the primary school curriculum in a 10-month period. And then we would transition them to grade four after 10 months or the following school year. And I wasn't here at the time, but the reports were that basically the government laughed at us, said, we're willing to let you try, right? So we started trying in one of the regions and we had very quickly enormously convincing results. But it took us until 2017 when our research partners, uh, Sussex University and Hawassa University in Ethiopia, completed a six-year uh, six longitudinal study that showed that six years later, the advantages 
that the former speed school students had over their classmates when they joined them in conventional classes, those advantages persisted, whether they be academic or socio-emotional, socio-cultural, uh, whatever. And at that point, with the evidence, the government almost did an about face, stopped on a dime and said, we're on board. This isn't just you doing this anymore. We we need to start doing it. And they started paying for their own classes. They created a speed school unit at the ministry and in several of the regions. Uh, this past year, the government was paying for and implementing over 80% of all speed school classes in the country. And now are introducing the speed school methods into teacher training. And it's now counted in the EMIS. It's, it's in the five-year education plan. But this happens not by coming in with an idea and trying, you know, just by your rhetoric to convince somebody, even saying it worked in these other countries. It needs to be proven on the ground and in a way that has maximum visibility uh, with the local actors and in a way to get back to the hothouse flower um, analogy and in a way that the government or the other stakeholders are fully convinced that it is suitable to the conditions under which they will have to implement the model. That idea of you can't just come in with a brand new idea. You can't just come to somebody with an innovation and say, we have a great idea that you're going to implement is one I think we need to keep reminding ourselves. The, the whole narrative of innovation is full of these stories of, oh, there's a single visionary who makes it all possible. And those, at least in my experience, don't really bear out the reality um, that if, if you're just a person who has a great idea and a lot of conviction, that's not actually enough. Um, and one of the things you pointed to is this idea of generating evidence and evidence that is compelling to somebody besides us. How do you think about what is the kind of evidence people need, in that case, the government needed, to scale the speed schools themselves? Well, there's hard data. There are hard data, right? Um, the, the longitudinal study showed unequivocally that the kids dropped out less, they had better attendance, they were classroom leaders, they did better in language and as well in math scores six years later. And their family health, their family economic situations um, improved more than the economic situations of the control group. So getting those data, I think are really important, but I also feel very strongly that giving people the opportunity to experience the model and to see for themselves what the difference is, um, is very important. So, you know, in Uganda at two, two or three different occasions, we took the state minister for education and a lot of other senior ministry folks to the classrooms to see speed school in practice and to you know have these kids come up to them with confidence and read and communicate with them and demonstrate their learning 
that in the conventional classroom right next door was just not happening. So the, the data are very important, I think, especially so that governments can go to their funders and say, look, or maybe to their parliaments and say, look, what the the officials talk about mostly when I'm interacting with them is the ex personal experiences in classrooms that they've had uh, had themselves. For me, one of the risks in that or in any transmission of a of an innovation, especially when there's a great excitement because of what they've seen, is to help the host country institutions or the host institutions that will be taking on the model, for them to understand that the model is not a product. The model is a process. The other, the other way I characterize it when talking with folks in Ethiopia and Uganda now around speed school is that it's not what we do, it's how we do it. Right. And this pertains also to other international partners that want to pick up the model and think if you can do a, a training in the model, then you're done. And there's all the mechanics underneath that not just how you train the teachers uh, in this instance, but also how you continue to motivate and support them so that once you've planted the seed with the training, to go back to an agricultural analogy, you have to water, you have to weed, you have to control the pests, you have to fertilize. And often, in my experience at least, um, I've seen enthusiastic uptake of a model, some innovation that they, you know, uh, parachute in to new schools, a new district, a new area, and say, here are the text, here's the curriculum you're going to work with, here are the models, do it. And it's not uh, an innovation in a box. It, there's a whole array of support and um, other inputs that need to be part of the adoption of the innovation uh, that go beyond the product and that make up the process. So much of the conversation I hear about scale, particularly, is that if you can just nail the model, if you can just have your product right, then you will get to scale. You sound like you're saying that's not the way we're going to get there. If what you do is you nail the perfect product that's got all the right pieces, you're still going to miss the opportunity. Yeah. Why is that narrative of product so compelling? And what do we have to do to start putting those process pieces in place as well? The allure of success is enormous, right? So you have these uh, RCTs, randomized control trials, and you show fantastic accomplishments. And people say, I want that. I want that for me too and my people. And the the fact of the matter is that an RCT is completed in a geographic place at a specific time with a specific set of actors and with all these other uh, factors that are 
if they're not unique in combination, they're, they're particular. And when you move that to a new context, everything needs to be revisited. The book I'm going to write one day is uh, going to be called Reinvent the Wheel. Right. So what, what I mean by that is even if you go in with a wheel, right, and the wheel works perfectly in one setting, if you move it from the road to sand or to dirt, you have to come up with a new wheel, right? If you move it to a location where the materials that you use to create the wheel are not available, then you have to come up with new materials to use it. And if you don't understand the process behind making that wheel, then if it breaks, you're stuck. Or if you do come up with a new use for the wheel, then you're stuck, right? So when we're talking about an innovation, whether it be in agriculture and health and education, uh, when we bring an innovation to a new place, we have to take into full consideration both the factors that prevail there and the need to establish what I refer to as the capacity and commitment of those who are going to be responsible for its implementation and its eventual sustainability or sustainability and scaling to achieve those results. Based on all of the learning you've done and all of the working, all the work you're talking about here, what is one thing that people need to be doing differently to solve for this failure, to build plants that will make it and not just flat out? hothouse flowers? You know, a popular theme these days is co-creation. And I think that co-creation is essential. Um, when I go into a country with my expertise, my expertise is in a lot of things, but rarely is my expertise in the particular circumstances or conditions or history background of the location where I'm landing, right? So my expertise may contribute to the discussion, but the expertise of the folks on the ground is the expertise that needs to prevail. I, I like to say that my greatest strength as quote unquote, an international expert is coming with the right questions and the ability to help the folks on the ground to answer the questions. So that's one important part of it. And a second important part of it is to understand that you don't solve everything at the start. The expression that I like to use is you can't adjust the aim if you haven't first shot, right? So you need to be able to start operating or implementing the program with your best guess of what's going to work, but being very attentive to what is working and what's not working. And then I guess three, build into the process flexibility. Flexibility both in what you're doing, how you're doing it, and what you're accomplishing or aiming to accomplish and flexibility in the actual model and outcomes themselves. So if you're working in one country, 
Um, say you're operating in, well, in Ethiopia with Speed School, we've been operating mostly in the highlands where the weather's better. And so the fact of sending kids to class for seven and a half hours a day is acceptable, even pleasant for them. But when we move to Afar and Somali regions, which are now under severe drought and very hot, the idea of children being in a classroom past noon is a health hazard, right? So there we only have classes of four, four hours or so during the day. So being able to have that flexibility in terms of the model itself and in how you implement the model um, are all really important. The work we do is hard. And it's hardest for the folks who have to do it full time and at scale. And if I were going to try to change anything about how we work in this business, it would be sort of to follow the trend in philanthropy right now and uh, be much more trust-based. Start from where the need is and where, for, where the responsibility for meeting those needs are, and then figure out what we can contribute to it rather than coming with solutions, even if it's solutions to problems that we've sort of agreed to with the host, host country government, um, I, I still think that we can turn a lot of this on its head. That's great advice to close on. Be more trust-based instead of just coming in with an external solution. Thanks so much for joining us today, Joshua. And to all of our listeners, hope you join us again next time for another episode of Failing Forward.